0: Dementia in Practice is recorded and produced in multiple locations. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which we meet. We pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples, their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia.
1: Hi, it's Hilton Coppy with you again. This is Dementia in Practice. And since this is part two of our episode on caring for people living with dementia, we're going to get straight into it. If you haven't listened to part one, it's in the podcast feed now. Like always, my colleagues from Dementia Training Australia, Marita Long and Steph Daly are back with us as well. In the first episode on uh, caring for people living with dementia, we spoke about mostly people living in stage one dementia, where people are most likely to be living in their home with minimal supports. In stage one, as GPs, we're trying to slow down disease progression by managing modifiable risk factors like cholesterol and blood pressure and hearing. Marita, can you remind us about what are some of the main features of stage 2 dementia? What might that look like?
2: I guess here we're seeing that ongoing decline in a person's cognition and function and we tend to see these sort of decline in parallel. So it might be that someone's struggling to make more sense of their context. They might have more difficulty remembering names of people or items or making sense of who belongs where often um, families will tell us that there's a lot more repetitive questioning that they can spend a lot of time you know looking for things that they're unable to locate and that can be really frustrating for for both the person living with dementia and the carers and i guess that's because communication starting to become a little bit more difficult we also see that there's much more struggle with doing those sort of normal activities of daily living you know personal hygiene might become a little bit more challenging or doing things around the house that they enjoyed and some of those community activities will also become more difficult and i guess another thing that can be really hard to navigate For the person with dementia and their families is that there can be some mood changes and that might be by way of being a little bit more agitated or a little bit withdrawn and it's really in this stage where we start to see those behavioural changes kick in that can be a real challenge for, for carers.
1: So it sounds like it's really getting to the stage now where the load on carers gets much greater. And Marita, you mentioned behavioural changes. Can you just expand a little bit more on what we might see at this point in time?
2: Yeah, so when I'm trying to talk to families and and people with dementia about the sort of changes that might happen, I think often back to my dad. And I remember that he really started getting his day and night time muddled. So he would sort of go off to bed, but he could wake up at, say, 10 p.m. and he would wake up and think, well, he's woken up. So he'd get get up, get dressed and come downstairs and sort of just rattle around, you know, waiting for breakfast. And his sleep patterns overall became quite disturbed. It It was a lot of getting up, up and down overnight. And we also started to see this behaviour in early evenings, which is often called sundowning, where he just started getting agitated and he'd be up and down the stairs and he'd be sort of at the computer or he'd be at the newspaper, he'd be out to collect the mail several times. He'd he'd start talking about his, his work and wanting to contact colleagues to, to tell them something that had sort of popped into his head. And I just remember it being a really stressful time for mum because she just felt like she was always sort of having to keep behind him to keep up with what was happening. Other family members tell us that their person living with dementia might become a bit more aggressive. So someone who's sort of been quite a sedate and calm person all of a sudden might um, respond in an aggressive way, which is sort of very out of character. Some people at this stage might also start wandering and leaving the house. And that can be really frightening for the carers. So those care needs really start um, escalating. And, And in fact, sometimes this is when families might present for the first time, because it's really where they're being tipped over the edge in terms of getting really overwhelmed with what care level they need to provide and also trying to understand the changes that their loved ones going through. So going back to our original goals of care with management, this, at stage two, our overarching goal of care is always to optimise or maintain dignity for the person living with dementia. But here we're really starting to have to balance the risk that can be involved. And so it's sort of providing dignity through safety.
1: We'll come back to this issue of safety in a moment. But Steph, I wonder if we could bring you in here. Uh, Marita was talking a little bit about behaviour changes that can occur in stage two dementia. And the the changes she was speaking about with her dad, I imagine would have come on over periods of weeks or months. So gradually appearing over a period of time. But Steph, what happens if, uh, a- If a family member or carer notices a much more sudden change in behaviour for a person living with dementia, say a change over hours or days rather than weeks or months, what sort of thing might come to your mind if there's this more precipitous change in behaviours?
0: I guess it comes back to um, when we were speaking earlier on in one of our other episodes about the concept of a delirium. So somebody becoming increasingly confused quite rapidly, perhaps in a short period of time, they may be suffering from an infection or the classic one is people who have a urinary tract infection, but it can be any infection or, or even as a result of medications or, or perhaps pain often from problems with things that you might not see, perhaps like teeth, for example, can be painful you might not know that that person's in pain and that can precipitate a period of of more rapid confusion that just comes on over maybe a few days or, or even over a day perhaps. And so it's really important when we're giving sort of information to families and also the person themselves that that they're aware that that sometimes that can happen and it, and it might be something that's reversible. So we have a really useful document called the delirium action plan which we'll put in the show notes which can be handed out to families and gives them some ideas. It's similar to the sort of COPD or asthma action plans that we use but gives you an idea about what those red flags are and when you might want to seek sort of urgent medical advice to see if something could be done to help problem solve what might be happening.
1: Steph you mentioned the term delirium I wonder if you could just explain a little bit more what a delirium is and why it's so important for family and carers to be on the lookout for something like this.
0: So when you have um, something like mild cognitive impairment or dementia, then your cognitive reserve is reduced. So the, the ability of your body, if you like, to cope with challenges is reduced. So that could be a challenge from, as I said, a medication or an infection. And when you experience that infection, then your cognitive function is further reduced. So you become confused, perhaps you might have hallucinations, um, which can be quite dramatic at the time. And this is as a result of the infection. Obviously, you might still have your background confusion there that you had before, but it's much more exaggerated during a delirium. And people who experience this can become really quite acutely distressed, and it can be very distressing for those around them as well. But the important thing about a delirium is it's most likely going to be, to some extent, reversible. So if it's an infection, we would treat that infection with antibiotics and then we would expect that person to regain most of their cognitive function there might be a slight sort of step change but really that person would probably go back to somewhere along the line of where they were before and so that's the important thing about it really it can be reversible to some extent which is why you probably need to seek medical advice if you think that somebody is experiencing a delirium
1: and i guess uh, family and carers need to be very much aware of what a delirium might look like, and that's where the delirium action plan can be really helpful so that they can alert the medical team as soon as possible. We might just come back to the goal of care in stage 2 dementia of maintaining dignity through safety so this issue of safety can be quite a difficult one to navigate what have been your experiences marita and steph with walking this tightrope about helping people maintain their autonomy while at the same time keeping them safe
2: it is a really challenging time for for everyone involved and i guess as the gp if we've made a timely diagnosis and we've been able to talk to the person with dementia we've got a sense i guess of what their wishes are you know often what's brought up is that they want to stay in their home for as long as possible and and you know we want to try and do that for for the person living with dementia to kind of honor their wishes but when things start to become a little bit unsafe you know becomes this balancing act of keeping them safe while also trying to honor their wishes and look out for the care as well so it becomes this kind of balancing act which is often referred to as you know dignity of risk and it probably leaves a few of us uh, having a few sleepless nights at times while we try and reach a position where you know everyone's happy and we feel satisfied that that safety is not being compromised. I don't know what you found Steph in that setting but it's probably one of the trickiest times in, in caring for people living with dementia. I think it is. And because we
0: also have people experiencing all those other things that we mentioned earlier, so perhaps some changes in behaviour where they might be resisting some of those home supports, it's even more challenging to try and get increased supports into the home. But at the same time, you want to be able to do that because that might allow someone to stay in their home. So it's a case of trying to get families and all the other people that you might be supporting that person with involved in a non-confrontational way so that they do have that opportunity to stay at home as long as possible if that's what they wish but at the same time knowing when to step in and discuss other possibilities perhaps a period of respite or perhaps a that point transitioning into a residential aged care facility what you don't want to happen which is what I always try and explain to people is that the worst possible scenario would be if they had something like a fall for example or uh, you know something kind of catastrophic and they ended up in hospital because I think nobody really wants to end up in hospital. So it's about trying to avoid an unnecessary hospital admission and do as much planning as possible so that any transition to any alternative care arrangements are done as smoothly as possible.
2: Yeah, and I was going to ask both Hilton and and Steph, actually, one of the things I find really tricky is when we're talking about the trajectory of, of dementia to families and people living with dementia is that planting that seed earlier, that the likelihood is that that it will come to residential aged care at some point in time for most people. Most people don't have the resources to care for someone, you know, at home 24-7 in those later stages. And trying to get across the importance of thinking through how that care might play out in a, in a residential aged care facility and having a look around early for, for somewhere that might be suitable, might be close to home, might be a place that the person living with dementia feels they would be comfortable in and trying to avoid what we just spoke about, the sort of the ultimate fall where you're in hospital and then it's kind of a rush to make a find a nursing home or a residential aged care placement. Hilton and Steph, how do you kind of bring that up with families early and have you had success in that kind of planning stage? I totally understand what you mean. It can be really challenging
0: having those sorts of conversations. But one of the things I was thinking about recently is we often talk about the negatives of residential aged care facilities, but there are so many positives about it that we don't often talk about. And maybe it's about reframing that conversation. You know, lots of residential aged care facilities offer really good quality care, but also a social environment for people to be in. And, and maybe we need to work on that a little bit more and and as you say having that planning and having that time to go around that you can actually probably find the right fit for you and thinking about it as that's going to be your home as
2: well at some point yeah i think it's interesting you say that because i do remember when my dad eventually went into a nursing home and you know he was the one person who never wanted to be in a nursing home but things had become so hard for mum and actually when he was admitted and settled, you know, we could all actually see he was actually being given a really fantastic level of care that just couldn't be provided by, you know, an elderly spouse and the family and the sort of services doing as much as we can. So I think that's actually a good point. It maybe is the selling point, isn't it?
1: I think you're right, Marita. That was the case with my uncle who had dementia and went into residential aged care after a period of time in hospital. But once he got in there, he was so much better. And I think he could actually see that he was better off and was actually grateful for that move. Although at the time, uh, he was quite resistant to it. So I wonder now, we could have a listen to uh, our patient, Anna, who we've met in previous episodes and her daughter, Sophia, and their good old GP, Dr. George, who's about to visit Anna and Sophia in Anna's home. So how's it been going for you, Sophia? How are oh. you getting on? Yeah. I know that I can cope anymore between her constant demands and my knee and everything else. I know I've got the community nurse coming every three night three days a week, you know, but really, it's just not enough. She fell out of bed last night, she bumped her head, she keeps leaving the stove on. She actually a tea towel on the stove, nearly started a fire. Yeah. It's getting crazy, Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like it's getting towards time where we need to think about her going into some care, both in terms of safety for her and also in terms of meeting your needs as her
0: carer. Yeah, she's actually really
1: scared of going into residential care and she's scared she'll never come home again. Yeah, which is so natural for people to have those fears at this yeah. point. Marita, have you ever been in a situation like Dr George?
2: Mm, It's a fairly common scenario, isn't it? It's that um, listening to Sophia talk and just the level of exhaustion that you can hear um, in her voice that, you know, she's really, really finding it hard, totally understandable. And I think there's a lot of discussion amongst families of that fear of heading into that residential aged care facility. And I guess what that signifies you know that there's a significant change and I also feel um there's often a lot of guilt around making that decision I guess one of the other things I'm thinking of is
0: also about the person who's living with dementia like this could be a really frightening time for them just reflecting back on what you were saying some of the things that their people might experience um during stage two is that you know that they're becoming more um, unaware of their surroundings or um, perhaps a little bit more disorientated and that might be a really really insecure time for people and so it's a, it's quite important that when we're talking about these things that we don't forget that that the person who's experiencing this unsure time you know is is also having some of those feelings of insecurity and 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 trying to reassure them that everything's going to be okay as well is really a really important point.
1: So we heard in the clip from Sophia that the community nursing team had been involved in in helping care for Anna. Steph, I know you've worked in a multidisciplinary style team recently. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how a team approach can be helpful in caring for people in stage 2 dementia.
0: Yeah the team I worked in had a, a really good variety of allied health professionals. So we had a social worker who was really great at going in and talking about advanced care directives and social supports and also things like taxi vouchers and financial assistance we also had a fabulous OT who can go in and do some of that home safety things that you might need. So for, for example, when we're listening to Anna and Sophie, I think, there was a comment about maybe she's leaving the gas on or something like that. There are things that you can do about that. So you can isolate gas switches and switch them off. So you can use an alternative mode for heating up food, but the person's still living in their home. And they can also have a look at, you know, home ha- shower rails and things like that. So OTs can be really valuable. And then you have your physiotherapists who can help with mobility and safety around the home in terms of using perhaps walking frames or or sticks or something like that. And we also had a pharmacist, which, which you know, really invaluable person in the team there who can look at some of those medications that we might not have thought about that might be interacting and also explain to people how to use a a home Webster pack, which, you know, medication dispensers or other things that might help them um, if they're struggling to remember to take their medications, for example and most of these things can be accessed through a home care package. So if you've arranged your aged care assessment and the person's been approved for a home care package, then you can access a lot of a lot of these allied health services through that service. So it sounds
1: a lot like the management of other chronic diseases that us GPs are quite familiar with, that we're like the conduit to helping the person access other services. So it's a fairly familiar role that as GPs we're used to doing is just applying a chronic disease approach to managing something like dementia. So Steph, you've mentioned occupational therapists being helpful. And I know one of the really challenging issues uh, in caring for people living with dementia is about driving. Uh, and is it appropriate when to stop? How can driving be managed? Uh, OTs can be helpful in making those sort of assessments. What sort of experiences have you had with that, Steph?
0: Yeah, so driving, it's the ultimate tricky decision, isn't it? Everybody finds this one a very difficult one. And I guess that's because there's no easy test, there's no easy way to decide whether somebody who has, who's living with dementia is able to continue driving. And although having a diagnosis doesn't mean that you hand in your license straight away, it does mean that there will come a time when probably driving has to be ceased and it's trying to explain that to people in the best way possible and I guess coming back to the thing of a a timely diagnosis uh, gives you that time to explain some of the things that might have to change for that person going forwards but if you get to the situation where you're unsure about whether somebody is safe to drive and um, and you're having some doubts then an OT is probably one of the the main people in a Support pathway who can offer you an in car assessment. So they do an actual driving assessment where they will watch the person driving and, and see how safe they are and whether their reaction times are okay. Can they read the road and that kind of thing? The problem with that is that there aren't very many available in the public system. Lots of them are, are private services and so they can be quite expensive. But I think that's probably the, the safest way to assess someone's driving.
1: Yeah, I think the beauty about an OT assessment is that they, before they get in the car with the person, they do a range of assessments to see if they're even safe to get in the car with the person. And that's different to a driving test like at the, it's called the Roads and Maritime Services in New South Wales. Probably every state's got a different name for that department but a driving tester doesn't do that pre-assessment safety check so I always think if I'm unsure about if one of my patients is safe to drive I don't send them for a driving test I try and encourage them and the family to see an OT because I know they'll get the off-road assessment done first and the OT will only get in the car with them if they're safe to do so and while it might cost 600 or 800 dollars that's less than the cost of getting a car repaired if there's been a smash so uh, it's probably a wise investment in the short term and the other thing is that it's almost like good cop bad cop it takes the onus Away from either the family or other members of the team to be the one that is retiring the person from driving. Marita, what what happened with your dad? I know there were some issues around driving for him.
2: Yeah, so he interestingly bought himself a new car, probably while well, he was, you know, in those um, earlier stages of dementia. But um, you can imagine someone upgrading a car which had you know the handbrake was where you pushed a button not where you pulled the handbrake up and really they got the car home and he really couldn't figure out how to drive it so he actually um, made a a declaration one day where it was a hailstorm actually and he said well I can't go out in that car In a hailstorm because the car's going to get wrecked and really from that point on he just never drove again it was really interesting and i've had that with some patients some patients will very willingly stop driving. I think they have a sense that they they know that things aren't quite right, whereas you can have other people who their car will have no rear vision mirrors, every panel will be banged up and they really haven't got the insight to to see that driving's no longer safe. And often that's because they're in an isolated spot, they don't have access to any other transport and it can be a real problem for people. So again, Like everything, when we talk about this, there's just so many complexities. And I think um, one of the things um, one of the geriatricians I worked with once told me was just to start off very early by saying driving and dementia, you know, they don't go together at some part. Like Steph said, you're going to have to retire the driving but look at it this way, you know, if you sell your car and don't have to pay insurance and don't have to pay registration and use taxis, you're going to be coming out ahead um, financially. So, you know, there's a, there can be some silver linings again when we, we talk to our patients about um, and our families about um, how to approach the, the issue of driving.
1: So that sort of brings up the point, Marita, about capacity for driving. But capacity is a much broader topic. And uh, I know we did a webinar recently with Dementia Training Australia on capacity. Uh, What were the main tips that you took away from that webinar, Marita?
2: Yes, I guess the main thing is to keep in mind that capacity is very decision specific. So it really depends on what the situation is that you're talking about. So, you know, someone might have capacity to make a will, but not have capacity to make a decision about driving, for example. So it's really about being able to look at the the situation that you're dealing with, that the person has to be able to understand what the choices are, be able to weigh up those choices and really understand the benefits and risks. And they need to be able to communicate that decision and understand what the implications of that decision. are. So, I mean, we could do a whole, you know, three episodes of the podcast on capacity, but I think it's important for people to be familiar and comfortable about how to go about assessing capacity in specific situations.
1: So on listening to uh, your Stefan Marita speaking about how best to help someone who's living with stage two dementia, it seems like it's uh, having in mind as a GP all the time, what might be the next step? How can we best help? this person and their family and carers, to navigate the next step. And a very important part of that is knowing the wishes of the person who's living with dementia and being aware of those wishes early. So this concept of advanced care planning is just so important.
0: I've heard about this business where you can... uh say so you don't if things go wrong you don't want any intervention or that is is that a thing that i should be looking at because that' what i would want
1: if that's what you would want that's what i would want to right and i i agree with that is definitely something that's worth looking at
0: right yeah
1: some of the information i'm going to give you today will be about that it's called an advanced care directive and it's an opportunity while you're as well as you are now to let me know and other yes part of the medical team yeah. what your wishes are in terms of the level of medical yeah. treatment but I agree with you both now's the time to get those things in place oh yes
2: I think that's only sensible it is sensible. hard but sensible <laughs>
0: Listening to Anna talking to Dr. George there, I think this goes back to how it's important to make that advanced care directive when the person has capacity and so linking these two things you know assessing whether a person can nominate who their substitute decision makers are for their advanced care directive um, is a really timely thing to do And, and some people who are in stage two will still have the capacity to make those decisions but it's really vital that we try and have those conversations so that these things are in place should anyone need to transition into a residential aged care facility or alternative accommodation, and they're unable to make that decision for themselves. It's then clear with the substitute decision makers that they've had a discussion about what the wishes were of the person. And then they know that they're acting in that person's best interests. But I guess one thing I've really become aware of in the last few months is that you need to be really clear about Firstly, do the people who are being made substitute decision makers want to do that role because it can be quite an involved role and and relies on them being available to support that person? And also, is the person who's going to be a substitute decision maker almost the right person for that role? So do they have any... Um, other motives that you might not be aware of, because the concept of elder abuse is a real, a real thing. And so it's up to us as the practitioners who are facilitating some of these discussions to be aware of who the people are in the conversation. It might be really obvious, it might be a daughter or a son, but even those people within that family there can be complex family dynamics and so sometimes it might be necessary to find out a little bit more information about what's going on with that complex family dynamic and then if you have any concerns about possible elder abuse or or something like that we actually in south australia have something called the adult safeguarding unit which is pretty similar to child protection in some ways, where you can phone up and have a discussion about your concerns. And even people in the community who have concerns about situations can give anonymous information to that team as well. And then they have the powers to investigate it in more detail.
1: And I guess whenever in doubt as a GP around these complex ethical and confidentiality issues, speaking to your medical defense, provider would be a helpful and safe step.
2: Yeah, totally agree there. Totally agree there, Hilton. And uh, I've certainly had to call on on um, their help for various sort of complex situations like that.
1: Yeah, we're talking about uh, dignity through safety. As the practitioner, we want to retain our dignity through being safe as well. So there's often parallel journeys going on. And speaking of journeys, Dr. George has been engaged with Anna and Sophia throughout the journey. As you mentioned earlier, Marita, uh, having the GP involved in the diagnostic process can help in the management and treatment process as as the journey continues. And let's move to that challenging conversation that Dr George is needing to have with Anna about her transitioning into residential aged care in order to be able to maintain her safety. Really, I just called in to check and see how things are going for you and Sophia because I'm I'm quite worried about Sophia. Her problem with her knee is getting pretty bad and she's going to need to go into hospital next... Oh,
0: look, it's not all that bad.
1: Well, it actually has got pretty bad now and she's going to need to go into hospital next week to have an operation. And I'm just concerned about you being here on your own.
0: I can look after myself like I always have.
1: You certainly, you've done a fantastic job in looking after yourself over the years, but just while Sophia's in hospital, I I don't think it'll be safe for you to be here on your own. So I've organised for you to spend some time in a care facility in the area that I know really well, where they take fantastic care of people for when Sophia goes into hospital.
0: It'll be lovely, Mum. Right. They've got beautiful gardens there. There's other people to talk to. I'm sure they've got nice food. Will they have carrot cake? They've
1: definitely got great carrot cake there, Anna. (music) Dr George, what a great doctor that he is. He even does home visits, which is just such an important thing to really get a sense of, of what life is like for people uh, in the community. But Marita, I'm just wondering from that conversation, what do you think were the key points?
2: Yeah, it was interesting, wasn't was it? Sort of having, you know, followed the journey from Anna, you know, when, when she first met Dr. George coming for a flu vaccine back in episode one or two or whenever that was. Um, and you can really tell that she's lost insight now you know and and the other thing i think that was really interesting was that the lack of empathy then people often talk about that with people living with dementia that that can happen and it can be quite difficult particularly for the carers you know when she says oh sophie's knee it's not that bad and and you know her defiance about oh i'll always look after myself just like i ever have and it does make it really challenging because on the one hand you know you're wanting to be the person who's going to honour Anna's wishes, and she wants to, you know, stay looking after herself at home. But we, you know, clearly have evidence that that's just not not safe uh, for Anna anymore. And I really liked the way I guess George tried to offer a reassuring voice about the fact that it was a facility that was local, that it was one that you know he knew uh, would look after Anna well but it's really difficult.
1: It's, it's almost like the trust that's built up in the relationship between the doctor and the patient can be used to help navigate those difficult situations. Steph, what sort of experiences have you had in this situation?
0: Well, I mean, the the closest thing i've had is my granddad who really he did get to the stage where you know there was out of date food in in the fridge he'd kind of get out of the house and get on a bus and we wouldn't know where he was and you know it was a really worrying time for my mum and i and my mum was working full time i was at university so we really didn't have the time or the resources to care for him ourselves and so we we took him to a residential facility for a a period of respite but unfortunately it it didn't go well and and sometimes it doesn't and I think you have to kind of accept that that sometimes that home isn't the right place for that person and so we took him out and tried again and this time we actually managed to find somebody who offered to be a, a living carer in fact he went to live with the carer and um, we paid her to look after him on a one-to-one basis. But obviously that's, that's something that doesn't really happen very often. And we were very lucky to be in that situation, but I guess it's okay if it, if they don't settle into, if somebody doesn't settle into the first place that they go to, sometimes it, it, it does take a little while. Sometimes you have to wait a little while to see if, if people get on there and sometimes you might have to move them to somewhere else. And, and just, recognising that, that that's something that can happen, I suppose, is quite important as well.
2: And I think that's the really important thing about encouraging families to use their respite time. So every, um, you know, when you have the aged care assessment done, you're allocated a certain number of days in respite. And when we're seeing that the carer's stress burden is becoming quite high or where there is something like a surgery coming up or it might be a family wedding, it could be all sorts of things where the family really need to have some respite using that time to be able to check out a few residential aged care facilities that you think might be the right right um, place but you can get a good look by actually using that respite time and sort of judge whether that is going to be a good transition point. And as we talked about earlier, you know, sometimes the person living with dementia and the families will just, you know, see how well it works and be able to say, gosh, we maybe should have done that some time ago.
1: So we've covered a lot of ground in this episode and thanks, Steph and Marita, for that engaging conversation. Remembering back to the conversations we had uh, in earlier episodes about stage two being the stage where things get a little bit messy or complex for families. And and I just hope this episode hasn't been too messy for the listener as we've moved from uh, one topic to the next. In the show notes, there is an example of a GP management plan that outlines in perhaps somewhat more of a logical and sequential way, the specific steps that a GP might use when assisting someone living with stage two dementia. Keep an eye out for upcoming episodes of Dementia in Practice where we will look at how to help families and carers manage when the person living with dementia starts to exhibit changes in their behaviour. There's also an episode coming out soon looking at end-of-life care in dementia where we will further explore strategies to assist people as the dementia enters the terminal phase. You can follow Dementia Training Australia on Facebook or at Dementia Train AU on Twitter. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.
2: If you're a person living with dementia or if you're a family member or carer of someone living with dementia, Dementia Australia has some great resources. The National Dementia Helpline is one 100 500 or you can visit dementia.org.au.
1: Dementia in Practice is an initiative of Dementia Training Australia which is funded by the Australian Government.